This is TREP Wire Week in Review for week ending October 22nd. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. And joining us this week is Darren King, Head of our CMBS product. This week, earnings continue to come in strong, giving a boost to markets. And a slew of economic data released point to continued recovery, albeit somewhat slower. Retail sales for last month were stronger than expected. Philly Fed manufacturing slowed. Initial and continuing jobless claims came in better than expected. Housing starts fell, driven by multifamily slowdowns. And leading economic indicators were softer than last month. Manus, the Fed Beige Book probably summarized it best. Outlook near term is positive. But higher prices, supply chain problems, a shortage of workers, and the Delta variant are creating uncertainty. You wouldn't know there's uncertainty from the way the markets have been moving, the equity markets. We've hit several new record highs for some of the broader indexes in recent weeks. People who watch the equity markets probably remember that we were down between 5 and 8% you know, less than a month ago. We've now recovered all those losses. At the beginning of October, we had three or four different concerns. One was inflation. One was the supply chain. Uh, one was interest rates, which go hand in hand with inflation. And one was earnings. Three of those four remain outstanding, right? We don't know when and how supply chain issues will be resolved. Interest rates have continued to go up, and they're now uh, where they were. They're at their highest level since May of 2021, the 10-year, that is. And inflation, you know, still still seems to be running hot. So it seems to be really supporting this market has been the fact that for two weeks now, earnings have come in uh, considerably better than people had expected. And that has led to a collective exhale. And it has really supported the market for the better part of the last two weeks. I think if there's anything to tell us that the, the market is in demand for any sort of asset, we can point to... Uh, WeWork actually getting a little money in the capital markets today, albeit at a much, much, much lower valuation than uh, what Adam Newman wanted uh, a couple of years ago. Well, I mean, people look for a reason to rally, and they've gotten one for the last 10 days. Bank earnings have been really extraordinary. We didn't talk about this last week because it came in after our recording last week. You know, the Goldman earnings were just spectacular. Uh, retail sales late last week, again, coming in after our, our cut of our podcast last Thursday, really solid. People were looking for a reason to rally. They got it. They pushed the equity markets higher. But at the same time, um, you know, oil prices ticked up again this week. Uh, the 10-year closed today at 1.68%, highest since early May. You know, there are real concerns out there, and, and the supply chain issues are, are not going anywhere. You know, to that point, I went to a Best Buy today looking to replace a computer that I had, and they had no computers to sell, which was mind-boggling to me on several levels. Number one is we spent all this time with a salesperson kind of going through how much RAM and how much memory and how much each one cost. And then after spending 15 or 20 minutes going through the specs of what I was looking for, he told me, by the way, you can't get anything here. <laughs> so we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but this has to reverberate back to retailers, number one, and in the longer run, the commercial real estate market for those that are trying to make their money 
uh, selling things that they can't possibly get. The last bit of that story was I went to try to order a computer when I came home. And ultimately, I got one from not Dell or HP, but Costco. Costco oh, yeah. had the computer I was looking for, and I can go pick it up about 45 minutes away tomorrow. So uh, this supply chain stuff is real. And I think that we haven't heard the end of it and its impact on uh, many parts of the economy. Nothing would have made me happier than to have watched that exchange between you and the Best Buy person when he was asking you, well, how much RAM do you want? I haven't thought about RAM since like 1998 when I replaced like 64 megabytes of RAM with 128 megabytes of RAM uh, in some compact USA gateway computer. Well, to be fair, this is not me spinning a yarn to the sales guy, you know, <laughs> off the top of my head, talking about RAM and gigabytes and other stuff. I'm reading off a spec that came from our IT department in New York, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm saying things like uh, MZHs and GBs and, <laughs> you know, RAMs and stuff like that. A RAM for me is, you know, a pickup truck, Right. You know, so that's my level of, of knowledge for what I'm Bottom. buying when I walk into a Best Buy. I'm still looking for the CDs. Floppy <laughs> disk. So, you know, talking about some of the macro issues that we've talked about, there are a couple that we talk about on a regular basis. If we look at things like higher prices, supply chain, labor shortages, and, and obviously the Delta variant, which of these is the scariest in terms of impact to commercial real estate? So I look at it from the perspective of inflation as a whole, generally speaking, is not good for real estate, but you look at real estate as an inflation protected asset class, um, which is you know, unique among other areas, you, you know, the equity market, certainly among bonds and fixed income instruments, because you get to reset rents. You think about you know, multifamily resetting annually, hotels, which still obviously have their issues, but, you know, resetting daily, you know, even, uh, you know, longer term leases in office buildings and, and retail centers, they're oftentimes rent steps or things tied to CPI. So you have growing revenue that can go along with inflation, where I think the inflation bug can have a negative effect on real estate is if you see wage inflation outpace, you know, general overall inflation because now you're going to the expense line of the equation um, for these real estate assets. And especially in low margin businesses like a hotel um, or something that's just operating below expectation a little bit, wages can be a pretty significant portion of you know, the expense number um, you know, below the line. And that can have a big impact. You know, hotel, regardless of what they're doing as far as you know, staffing them these days, um, if you start to see that you've got to forget $15 an hour, but be paying 25 and 30 and doubling that number on an operating business that may, maybe makes 20%, 25% at best, you know, especially in kind of your limited service, red roof in, holiday in type of thing, that type of inflation in terms of, of your employment staff has a bottom line impact um, and can really have a negative result. The broader real estate market, I think, you know, you look at your sort of class A type assets and your, your you know, larger sponsors in the multifamily and other spaces, you know, they stand to benefit from, from an inflationary environment, you know, because of, you know, that ability to control, you know, the revenue side of their equation. Yeah, I, I generally agree with everything you said there, Darren. I think that 
the expense side of things has nowhere to go but up and it's not just wages, right? The cost of energy, right, has gone up substantially over the last year. So heating and cooling bills are going to go up considerably for those. And probably six hours ago, I would have given a ring endorsement to everything you said and made that my number one concern for the commercial real estate markets. Having had my Best Buy experience today, I think that that can't be dismissed either as a real net negative for some parts of the market, right? You have now potentially three real headaches where you used to have two for the retailer, right? Number one is e-commerce slash slowing foot traffic, right? Slowing, you know, e-commerce being one reason for lower foot traffic, COVID being the other. So you had kind of two components for that. You also have wage inflation there as well, right? For the people that are manning your stores. And now you have a situation where your stores are open, you're paying more than you ever did to staff them and you can't sell something, right? Which was the experience today. And certainly to the extent that this goes on for a year or two, it's going to cut into uh, the top line, what they're selling. It's gonna eat away at the bottom line because you get squeezed on, on both halves. And if people get used to this idea of going to stores and not finding what they went to, you kind of accelerate even further that desire to just give up the store visit entirely. Those holdouts that have been still going to Best Buys and Staples and Office Depots like, like I do, you know, finally cut over and, and throw in the towel and stop going altogether. So, you know, I, I think that that was something I was dismissing prior to today. And now I'm, I'm thinking it's real. So let me take the other side of the, the coin here. And assuming that this supply chain stuff works itself out in the relative near term. And by that, I mean, I don't know, six months. A lot of, some people are saying it's, it's going to take two years for this to get worked out, but let's just say it will get worked out. We won't have shortages of stuff forever. There is another potential part of the equation here, which is that a lot of these businesses, hotels especially, have trimmed operating expenses in order to stay alive, right? including letting go of people, you know, service employees and things like that. And I've been seeing, and I mean, this is all anecdotal stuff, and maybe we should look at the, the, the real data. We get back to you on that. Hotels in particular that are coming back in terms of people showing up, people booking rooms and stuff like that. The services and the amenities and, and the expenses that the hotels are incurring to have those guests are not coming back at the same rate. So whereas you may have 75% of the revenue or 80% of the revenue that you had pre-COVID, you only have 40% of the expenses, right? So, and, and honestly, I think, and I'm kind of just thinking on the fly here, this is an analogy that may hold true through a lot of different businesses, right? So, you know, take all of the office worker people like us who've gotten by without business travel for a year and a half, there's no way we're going back to 100% business travel right away. I mean, that's bad for hotels, but it's good for the bottom line of the company. It means that there's more cash in the system, there's more profit in the system, which then can be reinvested into, into your own company or invested into the market itself, right? So I'm, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here on the supply chain thing or on the inflation thing and the uh, operating expense thing. But I will say also, obviously, I don't expect interest rates to rise very fast anytime soon, but 
that's a that that is a kind of an outlier risk, right? Like if the ten year goes to two and a half or three percent, or if the Fed finally realizes that this is real, real, real inflation, and damn the torpedoes, we have to raise interest rates. When you've been pricing things at five and six percent cap rates, or even lower, a cap rate increase of fifty or hundred basis points from that level is a very big deal. So. To me, that's a big kind of outlier risk. Yeah, the good news with that is for the fixed rate stuff that's maturing over the next year or two, most of that is a five handle, right? So for property owners to have to refinance into a rate that's higher than what they got 10 years ago, you know, or, or five years ago, seven years ago, something like that, you have to see a substantial uptick in the 10 year. You know, I don't know what the tipping point is, but I think we have a long way to go before we get there. Um, to your point on the hotel side, I do think that a lot of people, and it's not just hotels, it's fast food and, and so forth, the business model is changing. You know, I'm somebody who spent a lot of time in a hotel over the last year. I, I think it's probably been 40 nights or so over the last seven or eight months. And in some of these hotels, the, the default is we're not cleaning your room unless you tell us to, right? In the past, it used to be, unless you put the do not disturb on, we're coming in if you're not there. Now it's unless you tell us to come in, we're not coming in. And that's a you know something that may stick and that may be something that helps them manage costs, you know, down the line. Pivoting to CMBS, private labels, CMBS and CRE CLO issuance maintained a hot pace in the third quarter of this year. Darren, walk us through what we can expect. Yeah, uh, third quarter was you know, more of the same from the first half, $36 billion in uh, total private label issuance. And that's across the conduit market, the single asset, single borrower market, and uh, series CLO space, bringing the total for the year through three quarters up over $100 billion. I think the, the post-crisis record uh, is about 115 or $115 billion. And so, you know, with the pipeline we're already seeing going into the fourth quarter, we're gonna have no trouble as a market surpassing those levels um, and, and probably by a, by a pretty good margin. The themes also, not just from a total issue standpoint, but by sector kind of stay the same as well in that the conduit market continues to just lag so far behind. You know, everyone else has finished the race and, and they're still in the starting gates. You kind of look at it year to date uh, for conduit, you know, just over $22 billion uh, of issuance which on $100 billion total, you're talking about 22%, easy math there. Typically that number is about half. You know, Conduit generally makes up half of the total issuance historically uh, for the CMBS market. So you're, you're talking about just a dramatic, dramatic fall in that. And you know, what's making up the difference is largely coming from the CRE CLO space, which you know, historically had been around 10 to 15% of the market and this year is a third. Year to date, that number is $33 billion, and, and we've talked about this before, far surpassing even the, the full year numbers. You know, the record for, for four quarters was $19.5 billion back in 2019. And again, from the earlier reports we're seeing for the forward pipeline, it seems like three quarters of the, the managers in the space are at least planning to have a deal price before the year end. So we could see that number easily get up over $40 billion before 2021 calls it quits. You know, some interesting things that also kind of come out of this are the percentage of fixed rate bonds relative to the market has also changed dramatically. And, you know, we've been talking about inflation and the impact, uh, you know, on the fixed rate sector. 
Well, again, you had typically more than half the CMBS market is fixed rate. You can look back historically. This year, we're down you know, below 30%, and that's primarily because of the, you know, the lack of conduit issuance. Um, the entire series CLO market is floating rate. So you're really seeing that shift in terms of the type of coupon you're getting in the market, which given the nature of inflation and the reluctance to potentially buy uh, fixed rate assets in a rising rate market kind of bodes well and, and has, has kind of allowed spreads to you know, maintain their tight levels, especially uh, you know, in the lower yielding part of, of the AAA sector. You know, AAAs in the conduit space for the, you know, the 8 billion total issuance that we saw for the, mar- for the quarter kind of hovered in that high 60s to low 70s versus uh, swaps. So you're talking about, you know, depending on where the 10-year note was at that moment in time, you know, two and a quarter-ish percent type all-in yields. Obviously, um, not super attractive by most standards, but on the, on the plus side, and the reason you can kind of keep spreads as tight as they are is because you're not seeing, you know, nearly as much, you know, issuance in that space. If you were, you know, doubling or tripling that amount of volume, you might see a little bit more pressure uh, on spreads to widen, but there's you know clearly enough demand to soak up what limited supply there is. One area that you've seen kind of some divergence in terms of spread performance um, is looking a little bit further down the capital stack, comparing series CLO triple Bs to the conduit market. You know, in, uh, in the third quarter, conduit triple Bs actually widened about 30 basis points. Again, dearth of supply, but clearly maybe a slight mix in, in terms of the collateral composition of those deals. Again, the demand for fixed rate paper, uh, but that's our, that part of the sector widened. Series CLO triple Bs, despite again, you know, massive amounts of issuance, actually on the order of 30 basis points tighter in spread. Again, a floating rate asset. Part of that plays in multifamily, still very much the, uh, the sector of choice um, as far as comfort level. And series CLOs, you're talking about 70% of those deals are, are multifamily. Transitional in nature mostly, but still multifamily, something most investors and lenders are very comfortable around. The shift we actually saw in the quarter uh, that was interesting on the conduit side was an uptick in office. Yeah, so Darren, you, you started talking there about the kind of the breakdown of types of properties that you're seeing in deals, in CMBS deals, and especially in conduit. You know, we watched this. Post-COVID, the first few conduit deals that came out had very, very little retail, very, very, I mean, almost no retail, almost no lodging, right? And we've started to see those numbers kind of tick up a little bit. But as we've talked about over and over again, the bid for kind of refinances of classic CMBS mall properties is really not there. I mean, so like, I guess a structural or kind of philosophical question is like, is there enough supply of office and non-Ginny, Fanny, Freddie, multifamily, and self-storage and these other property types that are not retail and lodging to, to supply the conduit pipeline going forward? Yeah, and that, that's at the heart of, of why conduit issuance is, is down so much, is that there hasn't been. Um, you've seen, you know, you mentioned sort of next to no lodging and retail coming you know, immediately out of the pandemic, lodging still less than 5% of, of all conduit loans for the year. That's a really low number. That number would usually be in the 10 to 15% historically. Retail actually has seen an uptick this quarter, which may account for some of the spread widening um, to, you know, to, to some manner of speaking. For the first half, retail is about 14%, which again was up from you know, the 2020 numbers in the depth of the pandemic. 
for the third quarter, it was 27% of all conduit loans by balance were, were retail exposure. And that actually came at the expense of the office sector. Um, office dropped from you know 39% of, of collateral in the first half down to 26. So you really sort of saw a little bit of a property composition shift in the third quarter, possibly as people are getting more comfortable with, with certain types of retail. And, and I think there's always been a confidence in you know, the grocery anchored shopping centers, knowing that people are going to go to the store to shop. So again, if there's no stuff on the shelves, there's not much to buy, but still, you know, you didn't think your stop and shop was going out of business, but you know, you have other types of, of retail assets, maybe the Burlington anchored type of things that are also finding some uh, some demand and some comfort level in terms of financing and securitizing them. Yeah, that's been the, one of the big surprises in retail over the last 18 months. And I think people are warming up to that idea. And that is that Burlington, Hobby Lobby, uh, Michael's, Joann's type shopping center that doesn't have a grocery store has really done extraordinarily well in terms of delinquency statuses, defaults, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, Burlington is one of those franchises that you still see opening stores here and there, Dick's as well. And, and, and I think that uh, by and large, that is financeable these days and securitizable, right? Malls less so. We've seen a couple of mall deals get done, you know, really high performing, uh, low leverage class A malls have been able to, you know, get financing, not in the conduit space, but in the SASB space. But I do think that people are warming up to other parts of the retail segment that they were terrified about a year ago. Kind of feel bad for all the uh, insurance companies and other long duration type investors out there. They must be going to other areas to get uh, to get what they need. I know CMBS is a small portion of the whole fixed income universe, but they were probably rely they they rely on CMBS conduit market for uh, some of that long duration. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I mean. You see, obviously, you know, the demand in, in the corporate bond market. You know, the other aspect of the CMBS market we don't talk about a lot because it's not as, as interesting from a credit perspective is you still got Fannie and Freddie, uh, you know, and, and Ginnie Mae, uh, you know, government guaranteed fixed rate collateral that, you know, they're issuing by the boatload. Right. Uh, right. But that's no fun. It's guaranteed. That's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> so right, speaking they, of which, I, I can't let this go because... I let it go before uh, when Manus was telling his anecdote. And, you know, I had a very similar experience this past weekend in terms of going to a retail establishment and not finding what I need. And it was in the mall near me, there's a lot of kid things. So there's like a soccer camp, there's like a soccer lesson, something or other or whatever. And then there's this kind of like play place, you know what I mean? With like the, the rides for little kids and everything else. My wife told me about this place and said, you know, my son, they took my son there recently and he loved it. So he's having a meltdown with me the other day. And I said, let's go to the arcade. Come on, John, let's go. Right. He goes, all right. He like, he's, he's all about it. We get in the car, we go there, get out of the car. He's sprinting down the enclosed mall. Like I'm looking around, like doing kind of research while we're walking around. It's actually kind of popping, but anyway, sprints all the way down, like a hundred yards away from me gets to the, the arcade place, runs under the chain that was across the door into it. It's a private party for the next three hours. Can't go in. Talk about straight mm. devastation 
forget about RAM, forget about keyboards on your laptops. That was devastation right That's there. That's a meltdown. That's a supply chain issue in my book. <laughs> That's a meltdown. So last week, we spent a lot of time covering a lot of office stories. And this week, we've got a bunch of hotel stories. So we're going to dig into some hotel content, the first being a trading alert. So, you know, we try to bucket these things in themes. Sometimes the weeks go by without a theme presenting itself. Uh, but sometimes there is a theme. Last week, it was an awful lot of downsizing news, renewing leases for less space, moving to new offices with less space. You know, the, the theme I thought emerged this week, if I could identify one in the commercial real estate space, was an uptick in activity for hotels in areas that were what I would call marginal, unloved, perhaps. There was, you know, other deals that were, were kind of predictable, you know, uh, drive to seaside sales and so forth. But there were hotels being put on the market or selling in areas that were not really, you know, surging in terms of business activity or other elements. And we'll run through them all. The most interesting story that we covered this week in the, in the Trep Wire, actually, it's going out tomorrow morning, Friday morning, as a trading alert. This was a story that we started to cover last spring. It is a big single asset portfolio CMBS deal. Uh, it was known as CSMC 2017 CHOP. It was a 48 property portfolio that was securitized by uh, a combination of Chatham Lodging Trust and Colony Capital. Uh, the loan ran aground in June of 2020. The note was sent to special servicing. Uh, payments were no longer made. As we reported last summer, the borrowers sought the appointment of a receiver. They were willing to throw in the towel, put through an orderly transition of the properties back to the lenders uh, and, and so forth. This week, we found out that the owners of the property found a buyer. The buyer has assumed the loan. Uh, the loan is, I believe, almost $800 million in outstanding balance. And in the process of buying the properties and assuming the loan, this delinquent asset cured in October. So, you know, why is this important to us? Number one is the portfolio was valued at a little over a billion dollars uh, in 2017. So if somebody is assuming the loan and willing to keep it current, the new buyers are seeing almost $800 million in value in this set of 48 assets across 21 states. So even if you're saying that the assumption of this loan means that they're kind of buying this for $780 million, there's really no additional equity in there, that would only represent a 23 or 24% reduction in value of this enormous portfolio over the last 18 months. Chances are they do see equity value in this, so it's worth more than 780 million. So given all that the hotel market has seen over the last 18 months, I, I think this is a real sign of faith in the market. Somebody's come in, taken over a sizable loan and, and thinks they can make money off this. Just by way of, you know, kind of putting a bow around this, and I'll turn it over to Darren and Joe to, to react to this. 
you know, DSCR for this in 2020, this portfolio was 0.10x and occupancy was 46%. So if I'm looking at this, I, I see this as a big green shoot for the market. Well, I know that there were a, a few of these big hospitality portfolio securitizations done. I mean, Ashford, I think had a couple, Colony had this one and maybe some others, but I just think it's a, it's a bet on the recovery, right? And there's got to be a play here that says there is significant equity value, not today, but a year from now or two years from now. And that, I think that's kind of the, the view here, right? Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a lower risk equity play, right? The difference in kind of taking this over, you know, this $800 million portfolio over is you don't have to put in any pressure, you know, I don't know all the terms of, of the uh, assumption, but you're probably not putting in very much of any fresh equity. If they had just gone out and bought an $800 million portfolio of hotels, they're probably going to get a loan that's in the $500 million mark. If any, you know, if that large, maybe, maybe a little bit smaller and have to put in $300 million of equity or get meds, things like that. Here you're, you're taking a, a lower risk bet. They're clearly going to have to cover the, you know, the debt service shortfall that they've got probably had to make up for the uh, advances and things that had occurred since it first went delinquent, you know, a year and a half ago. And that's not an insignificant number, especially on an $800 million portfolio, but it's not the $300 million of, of equity that you'd otherwise have to go in to, to buy this fresh. And one additional point that I'll put on is there was so much capital raised last year to go after, you know, quote unquote, distressed trades that, you know, I imagine they look at this and see that, see some upside, certainly see some upside from their basis, but there's also the, maybe a little bit of the use it or lose it mentality, which is if we don't put this money to work now, you know, when do we have to give it back? You know, would they rather almost lose a little bit of money or take that risk and be able to hopefully, you know, push some of your chips onto the table rather than, you know, sort of folding your hand and, and handing that money back to your investors. You know, the interesting thing for me, in addition to everything that you said is, this is big enough that it's going to move the needle this month on delinquency levels, certainly in the hotel segment, but also overall. When you have nearly a billion dollars in debt, you know th that's a big part of the hotel market. And what you're going to see is, I think you're going to see a more than 1%, more than 100 basis points of improvement in the delinquency level in the hotel segment this month. And I think you're going to see another sizable decline overall in the, the overall delinquency rate across all CMBS this month, in part because of this big uh, loan that we'll have cured. So uh, it will move the needle. We will talk a little bit later on what we're seeing in losses on hotels, but I'll run through a few more, more stories in the hotel market that caught my eye this week. Um, a big one, you know, in the same vein of what I was saying before of kind of an unloved market where somebody's going to try to sell into this market. This story came from The Real Deal. Sterling Bay is going to try to sell off the Hyatt House Chicago uh, in the Fulton market. You know, we've talked before about just how miserable the Chicago market has been, even before COVID, right? Too much inventory, um, falling occupancy, falling values, lots of defaults. This is going to be a really highly watched sale. Uh, Sterling Bay has hired Jones Lang LaSalle to move the hotel. It's a 200 key uh, full service asset. One of the, the notes that came 
uh, with that article from The Real Deal, which really caught my eye. It's not Chicago specific, but it talks about the weakness that Sterling Obey will be selling into more broadly is that according to the American Hotel and Lodging Association, business travelers will probably drop in terms of occupancy 86% compared to where they were in 2019, right? 86% below where they were. So this particular sale, bad market, tough environment, they're going to hit this. I think this is going to be a very, very heavily watched uh, asset sale. Uh, the 86% just feels like you're looking at a race to the bottom among these owners. How do you get anyone, how do you get anyone into, into your facility? Uh, I mean, I've done, I haven't done any research on, on this, but I, I have to believe that some of the positive earnings that we've seen, especially the, you know, the bottom line over the last couple of weeks and the last couple of quarters has been driven by just a complete erasing of that expense line, right? That travel, that conference budget, you know, I'm not, I'm surprised it's not even higher, 86%. I mean, there has been just no business travel for uh, the better part of 18 months. So, um, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, another one that caught my eye this week, Monarch Alternative Capital announced that it had purchased the Westin Minneapolis Hotel. The Westin Minneapolis is a 214 key full service hotel in downtown Minneapolis. The article, which came from Hotel Resource dot com said that monarch themselves uh characterized the deal as being at a significant discount for what they would have been paying you know of course two years ago um but it came via an off-market transaction that only took place because uh, of the the pandemic right so it sounds like from their point of point of view they were the only bidder on an asset that again why why was this one interesting to me one is Minneapolis has seen a lot of businesses leave, Target being the biggest one, giving back more than 800,000 square feet of space in downtown uh, and others as well. So not a surging market and also a city that, for better or worse, got a lot of negative publicity last year because of, you know, the, the protests, right? Uh, just like New York and other areas that, um, you know, here you have somebody coming in and saying, you know, we're going to buy this asset in downtown in a market that is not exactly surging, uh, and we're going to deploy some capital. We've also done some analysis on hotel resolutions for the last decade, and you've got some interesting uh, observations there. Yeah, we put out a blog a couple of days ago. Uh, I think it went to our broader audience, but uh, anybody on our blog uh, email list. But if you didn't get it, if you're not on that list, uh, feel free to email us at podcast at trep.com and we'll add you to the list and we'll get you this report. What we tried to do was give people a sense of what losses have looked like thus far in the pandemic versus what we saw from 2010 to 2019. You know, we are big believers that A, no two crises are the same, right? The 1990 to 94 commercial real estate crisis was a lot different from 2008 to 2012, which is a lot different from what we're seeing now. And for those that think that it's wise to kind of look at a 25-year swath of data to come up with loss assumptions, recovery assumptions, and so forth, probably not the best way to look at things. And, and that was really underscored by our hotel analysis. The real headline here was that when you look at the hotel resolutions 
from 2010 to 2019, the average realized loss on more than 800, I believe, CMBS loans that we looked at was about 50%. Uh, for, sing for limited service hotels, it was 50.4%. For full service hotels, 49.2%. So not a big separation between the high end and the low end. When you look at stuff that has been resolved from March of 2020 to today, the average loss has been under 25%, 23.6%. And again, only about a 1% difference between limited service resolutions and full service resolutions. So the big question is, why have the resolutions been so much better now than they were in 2010 to 2019? And there's really three reasons. And number one is the things that have been resolved thus far were resolved quickly. So expenses have not been able to really kind of add up over two, three, four, five years as they did during the great financial crisis. During that period, sometimes we saw loans go into default in, 28, in 2008 and not resolve until 2015. So you had seven years of advances and, and other expenses. The stuff we've seen thus far has been resolved quickly. Uh, the downside of that means that as more time goes on, this 24% number probably goes up. Reason number two is the stuff that was underwritten and resolved in 2010 to 2019 really, really was done at inflated valuations. The stuff that was securitized in 06, 07, and early 08 really was inflated values. And accordingly, you're going to see, you know, the higher the valuation, the bigger the loss, right? To the extent that there was value inflation. And then lastly, there was very little liquidity coming out of the great financial crisis. Now we have liquidity on top of liquidity. And so bids are just coming out of the woodwork for some of these assets. And that is keeping the losses down thus far. And with that, let me turn it over to you, Darren. Uh, and Joe, you've been through the wars, uh, just like I have. Why don't you give us your thoughts on, on what you're seeing from this report? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of, of the, the timing coming out of the crisis, the amount of time it took to dispose of, of loans, and then also the liquidity aspect, not just because there's so much capital out there, but I'll add technology has had a lot to do with this. You know, We've got lots of friends at the various auction sites especially as it pertains to limited service hotels, those auction platforms crush it on the limited service hotels because there are people coming out of the woodwork, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Manis, not just institutional investors, but individual investors. I heard an anecdotal story one time from someone who said they had something like 40 bids, 40 different bidders for a limited service hotel. And the top three or so bidders for it were all lottery winners who needed a place to put their cash. And you know they got qualified to bid. They clearly had the capital to do it, and you couldn't have found you know that person couldn't have probably found their way to any of these assets in you know 2010, 11, 12. But because of the access that you know you have just via the internet and show them your bank account, boom, you can bid um, if they think you can close. And so, and I, I would not underestimate that in in terms of the hotel sector. Buy it, hire a higher management company, boom, you've got a you know a, a cash flowing asset to work with. Well. It's interesting when you talk about the, the auction houses, we've had the people from Real Insight Marketplace come on and, 
And, and at some point, we'd love to have uh, the 10X guys on as well to give us their perspective. But anytime I look on their websites, it does seem like 40 or 50% of what they're offering in a given week is in that limited service hotel space. And, and so I would underscore what you said, Darren. We, we should look at these numbers with and without liquidation expense, because I think that's that's got to be, you mentioned it, Manus, but that's that's got to be a big part of it, right? Because you're not repaying six years of service or advances. Well, paying. scratching beneath the surface, I'll give two more data points. You know, the difference between the 2010 to 2019 versus now is almost 30 points, right? It's yeah. 50% versus 23 or 24. When you look up what is the breakdown of that, the expense side is about a third, meaning, you know, eight or nine points out of the 25 or 26% difference is the expense side. Expenses were much, much higher than they were for that 10-year decade before COVID than they are now. But like 17 or 18% is made up of greater proceeds compared to the appraised yeah. value and balance of the loan that you had before the loss. It's a huge component that you're getting better execution than you were getting in the 10 years prior, right? Part of that is you had less debt and you had less value, right? So all things being equal, the same bid for two different hotels or similar hotels, if you have less debt and less value, it's going to seem bigger. Right. But part of it is you're getting better bids now than you were five years ago. The relentless bid in the hotel space. Yeah, I think the one other piece, as you look at, you know, the, the items being liquidated now is I think the services are probably being a little bit more selective and selling the stuff they can get a good level for and hanging on to probably, you know, individual traders mentality, which is let your losses run, cut your profits short. Now, none of these are profits, but, you know, the ones that they can get kind of closest to their loan balance. All right, let's go with those. Let's, you know, hit the bid on those, take a 20% loss. We can recover, you know, we can, we can stomach that and move on. The ones that are looking dicier, they're probably hanging on to now and seeing if the market you know, turns for them and they can get those back closer to, uh, to that same 20%. If there's one lesson we learned from 2010 to 2000, let's say 16, is that your best loss is your first loss, right? That those that waited for that recovery, that recovery really never came. It never came for malls, uh, for distressed hotels. It never really came. That recovery um, that people were counting on, the retenanting or you know, putting money in and refreshing the property, it never really came. And it'll be interesting to see if this trend continues or if some of the lessons that were learned in, in the last crisis you know, are not retained and people try to wait for that home run bid that never comes. Okay, let's uh, let's go to shout outs. We got a huge bag of candy from the folks at Black Eagle. So if you were a listener last week, we were talking about how disappointing it is that when you go trick-or-treating, you get the fun size candy bar, which is of course the tiny one, in case you don't know. Um, and we were rewarded with a huge box of full-size, king-size, big, large candy. And uh, Manus, the Almond Joy is in there waiting for you. And not only was it, you know, 
and you know it wasn't even like the medium size this thing was legit and uh and it will be waiting there for you even if you don't go to the office for a year because nobody else wants to eat an almond joy the beauty he might have to wrestle me for it the beauty of the almond joy is that it could sit on your shelf for 10 years and you still unwrap it and you bite it in and it's still moist on the inside like it's just amazing that's not the beauty that's the disgustingness of it (laughs) it is just perpetually moist why we don't use that for like you know your hands like after a tough day of work i don't know like again it's it's coconut it's basically uh, coconut oil so thank you to those folks that that sent us that Deborah M. That was uh, that was extremely generous, and I've already broken into a Swedish fish box. And then we had a, a bunch of uh, Twitter chatter folks that called out our podcast as one of the one of the ones to listen to. Kieran R. and Grant R. suggested our pod. Thank you for that. We had some inbound requests for the 2012 mall loan extension that we discussed last week. Eugene A. Oz, David C. and Mark E. And I I hesitate to bring up this story with the supply chain and product shortages we've been talking about. The holiday season is expected to be the year of the gift card. So man, as you were talking about not being able to find a computer, Joe, you can't, uh, you can't get your kid to get into the arcade. And uh, it seems like this year, people may actually be welcoming a gift card, which is very unusual. Well, nobody, in my, give- nobody in my world is accepting a gift card as a gift. Just, just for all you husbands out there, don't take the bait. Yeah, the wife won't won't be happy. I was, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, my, my big go-to gift every year would be a gift card at a really expensive restaurant in New York for my wife, something that we, you would never try on a Thursday night, but if you had a gift card, you would. And, and it got us to uh, try some really extraordinary places over the years. But the last one I got, was 11 Madison, which was really, really highly rated, great menu. My wife is is a real foodie. She's a professional or she was a professional chef herself for a while. And we were so looking forward to this. And then COVID came, COVID left. They reopened the restaurant as vegan only. And now it serves as a little device that sits under a you know, the leg of a stool that was unbalanced before and now is balanced. This former expensive uh, gift card now serves as a, a small household device, never to be used unless they back off that vegan menu. Ouch. With that, we'll close. Thank you, Darren, for joining us this week. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keen. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or comment, send us an email to podcast.trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. 